The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. This season, we are considering homelessness as a hydra, a beast with many heads. Today, we're focusing on the head that is mental health care. An article on the website Psychiatric Times titled The Never-Ending Loop, Homelessness, Psychiatric Disorder, and Morality notes that there's a clear link between psychiatric disorders and homelessness. Disentangling the nature of this relationship is complicated. Regardless of mental health status, people who are homeless generally have a history marked by poverty and social disadvantage, including considerable poverty in childhood and lower levels of education, and they are likely to belong to an ethnic minority. Mental illness had preceded homelessness in about two-thirds of the cases. It goes on to say homelessness, in turn, has been associated with poor mental health outcomes and may trigger or exacerbate certain types of disorders. For example, findings indicate that homelessness is related to higher levels of psychiatric distress and lower perceived levels of recovery from serious mental illness. Add to that a commentary that appeared in the Juno Empire this week that reported that an estimated 30% of Alaska's homeless population suffers from severe mental illness. The author of that commentary is Faith J. Myers, and she's my guest on this episode. Here's our conversation. That I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost, and I would search the wide world over. But of all the roads I'll ever walk, I just, I can't have you. My name is Faith Myers, and my partner's name is Dorrance Collins. We volunteer as mental health psychiatric patient rights activists. So, help listeners understand what a mental health psychiatric patient's right activist does? What does that mean? Well, we fight and advocate for psychiatric patient rights and improving psychiatric patient rights and quality of care. From my own personal experience, psychiatric patients in Alaska do not have fair rights, and that's not good for society or the patients. We started out testifying to the various boards around the state 
that psychiatric patients needed improved rights to help in their recovery. Our testifying brought about some changes, but not enough. We testified to the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority, uh, the Alaska Mental Health Board, the Alaska Psychiatric Institute Board, uh, NAMI Board, uh, Computer Web Board, about a dozen different boards and over a period of maybe a hundred times. And uh, our testifying didn't really make a dent in it. On two occasions, we managed to get needed bills introduced in the House and the Senate on improvements in psychiatric patient grievance rights. But the opposition to the bills from the Department of Health and Social Services and the providers of psychiatric services killed the bills. But one of our successful legislative actions was the Gender Choice of Staff for Intimate Care Bill. It was signed into law in 2008. It gave psychiatric patients at least some say in who provided intimate care. But uh, one of the problems with the law is there's no state enforcement mechanism. And that's a problem with the grievance law and some of the other laws that are supposed to protect patients but because of the lack of state enforcement mechanism, they don't actually protect patients as well as they could. So I know you're also an author. You, you wrote a book called uh, Going Crazy in Alaska that's a history of sick care in the state, and then an ebook more recently. So could you tell us a little bit about your books, your All right. writing? I had already testified at the point of writing Going Crazy in Alaska, I had already testified many times to boards and written dozens of commentaries on needed improvements in patient rights. The book is about my experience as a psychiatric patient in various facilities in Anchorage, Washington, and Nevada. And it was the indifference of my treatment and my mistreatment that led me to become a psychiatric patient rights activist. The book also describes the mental health system in Alaska and what can be done to improve it. And uh, the ebook we just recently released is called Mental Health Care in Alaska 2022 a report card by a former psychiatric patient, and it's exactly what it says. It's a report card on the Alaska mental health care system, how they're failing, and what they can do to improve the patient rights to best practice, which would also improve recovery for patients, reduce trauma in psychiatric patients, and bottom line, it would be the best thing for patients and for society. And it would cut cost in state uh, mental health care facilities. So um, we really advocate for uh, raising the standard of psychiatric patient rights and quality of care to the standard of best practice. 
Um, also, as for now, for the most part, psychiatric patient rights are decided by providers of psychiatric services because the legislature gave that control to providers of psychiatric services in a number of laws, including the Psychiatric Patient Grievance Law, AS 4730-847. So you can see the, the deck of cards is stacked against the psychiatric patient. So on this season of the podcast, we're, we're kind of thinking through homelessness as a hydra or a beast with multiple heads. So one of those heads um, is mental health and mental health care. So can you help understand, listeners understand how mental health care and homelessness become intertwined? Well, the failure of Alaska's mental health care system contributes to homelessness. The closing of the inhumane psychiatric facilities in the 1960s was the right thing to do, but there was no well-thought-out plan in place before releasing the patients. The federal and state governments did not develop a successful way to move people with acute mental illness seamlessly from institutional care to community care. I attribute the failure to Alaska state agencies not wanting to spend the money or effort to find a solution. As a result, too many psychiatric patients have ended up living on the streets. The deinstitutionalizing of psychiatric patients happened in two phases. In 1963, Congress passed the Community Mental Health Act to provide federal funding for community mental health centers and research facilities. And the second phase was the adoption of Medicaid in 1965. Since the enactment of those two programs, 90% of the beds have been cut at psychiatric hospitals. Now, some estimations put the homeless populations in Alaska with a severe mental illness at about 30%. In my estimation, I double that number because I include individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder. Any person that rotates in and out of psychiatric facilities for a forced evaluation or treatment will experience trauma brought about by handcuffs, isolation, and restraints. This is more likely to develop into or exacerbate PTSD, which is one of the costliest and most debilitating mental disorders. In the five years I rotated in and out of API from 1999 to 2003, there was no realistic plan to move patients to community care. I was often discharged from API with no cognitive ability to even fill the prescription that they put in my hands. On one occasion, I was on the phone with the bank trying to pay the rent on my apartment. Staff at API hung up the phone on me and I ended up losing my apartment. There was little or no contact with any social workers at API and I became homeless. As far as a solution to homelessness, when I attended the Improving Lives Conference at the Denina Center, September 27th, 
there were conversations around the need for a step-down psychiatric facility, not as restrictive as API, where patients could be connected with social workers to help with housing and medical care, a place where people could be transitioned to community care and a place where the courts could send a person that needed psychiatric patient care as opposed to jail. The old 126,000 square foot API building could have been used for just such a mission, but it was sold by the state, which was a great mistake. So in my experience, those that are experiencing mental health issues um, and don't have insurance, don't have a whole lot of options in Anchorage. It's either Psyche R or API, and there's not much else. So maybe the step-down facilities are already speaking to that. But um, it, in your opinion, is there a lack of mental health care access in Anchorage, in Alaska in general, and does that contribute to homelessness as well? There is a lack of mental health care and access to it in Alaska, and that does contribute to homelessness. But House Bill 172, which was recently signed into law, will help individuals in mental health crisis receive mental health care. The law provides for the creation of emergency crisis now centers where a person can be treated for up to 24 hours and released. It also provides for crisis now residential centers where a person who needs extended mental health treatment can be referred to. This hopefully will provide more access to mental health care and relieve some of the homelessness. So I've been asking folks this question about if they had a magic wand, um, what's the one thing they would do to alleviate homelessness or in your case, maybe mental health care issues in Anchorage? Like what would you do if you had that magic wand? If I could have a wish, I would establish a clearinghouse for information about the homeless population. How many of the homeless have a serious mental illness? And how many have a learning disability and unable to read and comprehend at a basic level? How many have a substance abuse addiction? How many fit the state definition of having a disability? The state and the city cannot fix the homeless problem unless they have those statistics. So what would you like to have folks understand that's maybe missed about homelessness and mental health care in Anchorage? What, what gets missed that you'd like them to understand? Well, it's often stated that people are living on the street by choice. I would answer that nobody lives in a tent at 30 below zero by choice. They also say that the mentally ill can just choose to go get the care they need, that it is available. But schizophrenia and other serious illnesses rob a person of the ability to make rational choices. Usually it is the relatives and friends of that individual with a debilitating mental illness that help direct them to services, which is how it was in my case. It was my relatives and friends that helped get me into uh, psychiatric care. I'd like to, to say also that I'd like to encourage the proper use of psychotropic drugs. Psychotropic medications have allowed many patients 
to conduct reasonable, normal lives. But overprescribing has become an American epidemic and it needs to be curtailed. So how could folks get involved in the work that you're doing as um, activists for psychiatric care and mental health care? They should testify in front of boards like the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority or the Alaska Mental Health Board or even the Alaska Psychiatric Institute Board. Um, they usually have public comment times when somebody can speak up and say their piece. And also a good way to educate the public is through letters to the editor and writing a commentary, which is an avenue that we use very often. And contact your legislators, asking them to improve rights for psychiatric patients. In particular, issues such as the patient grievance procedure law, which still needs to be improved, and a requirement that the state keep statewide statistics of patient complaints, injuries, and traumatic events. The legislature can't produce laws that are relevant unless they have those statistics. But right now, private psychiatric facilities and nonprofit facilities are allowed to keep those statistics secret within their internal, uh, internal psychiatric uh, hospital. Um, yeah. So the last question I always ask is, is there a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do that keeps you centered in the work that you're doing? I pray over everything. I believe God answers prayer and he always has in my case. And uh, I pray to relieve anxiety and worry and it uh, causes me to have a more positive outlook on challenges. And uh, even this podcast, I prayed over it quite a bit. I pray for clarity of mind when we're writing commentaries for both me and Dorrance, and uh, I pray for the effectiveness of our advocacy. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your knowledge with us around this issue. I appreciate it. Thank you. With all those lessons learned with the crazy long life that I lived already and the scars I earned I still can't seem to find the answers and though the questions I never knew but loving you just once was worth it even if I I can't during our discussion, Faith mentioned that in the era when psychiatric patients were being deinstitutionalized, the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, often called API, had a successful program for transitioning patients from the institution back into the community. In her book, she explains that by 1969, a greater emphasis was being placed on rehabilitation, and the goal was that of making long-term patients contributing members of society. She goes on to say, that under this enlarged plan, clients were carried through a series of four graded steps with gradually increasing responsibility and privilege, with the client group determining themselves the progression to the next step. To simulate patient leadership, 
group decisions were made without staff participation. The ultimate goal was to create a client-operated business to support the group following discharge with group living as part of the post-hospital situation. In a commentary she published in the Anchorage Daily News in March 2021, Myers wrote, To successfully release patients, API doctors from 1962 to 1972 adopted new plans for patient care. First was the recognition that traditional hospital routines perpetuated the return to hospitalization, and that keeping patients connected with the community was an important part of a successful release, along with teaching coping skills. From the book, the commentary, and our post-interview conversation, I learned that in that era, API was engaging with nearly 100 community partners in transitioning patients from hospitalization back into the community. Those partners were present in the facility as well, providing services and building relationships. That community transition model from 50 or 60 years ago is light years ahead of the lack of support many receive now when they're discharged, and that is if they're able to access mental health care in the first place. In the first episode of this season, we considered a quote from the former mayor of Anchorage, Tony Knowles. He said of the early homeless response in the city in the 1980s, that the community willingly accepted the moral responsibility for this issue, and those in need knew they had a caring and loving partner. When I think about the way that mental health care was being done all those years ago at API, it seems to have these same characteristics. Community, moral responsibility, caring and loving partners. The current state of affairs in Anchorage when it comes to mental health care seems to be lacking these factors. For years, I've watched people struggle to access proper mental care, often only able to access psychiatric ER or other short-term levels of crisis care, and discharged often without follow-up care or community support, clutching nothing more than a prescription. It seems to me that when it comes to mental health care, we need to go back to the future and find a community-based, caring and loving approach to treatment. The approach we once used, but abandoned. My thanks to Faith J. Myers and Dorrance Collins for opening their home to me and for sharing with us about where homelessness and mental health care intersect. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. 
Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lutner. <laughs> <laughs>